Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning, once again, to the sixth chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew, where we are going to look together at verses 19 through 24. Matthew 6, 19 through 24, you can find that passage on page 950 in your pew Bibles. Well, beloved, I trust that we have all been encouraged by the corporate worship of our truly awesome, perfectly holy God that has already taken place this morning. We know that truly our God is worthy of all of our worship and of all of our praise. As I was thinking this past week, as many of you know, Dave and I traveled a few short weeks ago to Rogers, Arkansas for the spring meeting of Covenant East Classes, and I'm sure that Dave would agree with me that we had the privilege of worshiping with the brothers and the saints there, as well as hearing a very powerful exhortation from one of our brothers, Reverend Ryan Crone, during our classes worship service that week. And I was thinking about it because I realized that any time that I get to worship multiple times in a week, I am reminded of and find myself very thankful for the goodness of God to me in my life. We get to do that again over the next several weeks with our Sunday evening services. And that trip to Arkansas is one of those that's just a little too far, and uh, it involves some flying, which, if you know me, I, I need to admit is one of my least favorite things to do. I am not a small man, and so the idea of my body not invading the personal space of whoever has to sit around me is never realized on an airplane. I don't like the stale, recycled air. I don't like the constant ear popping and the upset stomach that I get when I fly. I don't like the all-around discomfort of flying. But having spent some time soaring 37,000 feet above this country that we call home, I can tell you that even in all my discomfort, I was very much aware of the glory that God displays in His creation. You can't miss it. The rivers and the lakes, the beautiful landscapes and interesting geographical differences that are certainly evident from that vantage point. It's breathtaking, right? It never really gets old. And I couldn't help but to think that all of it, all of the beauty, all of the, the breathtaking scenery was created with but a word from the mouth of God. He spoke and the mountains were. He created... And the beauty that was the result of that creation is more than we can, as human beings, even fully take in. The creation is moved to sort of speak to the glory of God as He commands it. If you are someone this morning who knows the God it is, though we may at times take it for granted, we cannot miss it altogether, can we? What God brings into being will speak to His glory. He created it. 
He created it in order for it to speak to his majesty, to speak to his awesome power, to speak even to his his grace and giving us something like that to behold with our senses, with our eyes and our ears and our noses. Everything, every part of us being keenly aware of the God who is through his natural revelation. And it leads one to think, or it should. Have you ever thought about it? God creates, and the creation itself obeys and speaks and testifies to the glory of Almighty God. And beloved, if the physical creation, if the earth itself, the earth and everything contained in it, if that is obedient to the call of God, and of course some of you are looking, I mean the entire universe. God didn't just create the earth, but he created all of it. It is obedient to the call of God. How much more responsive should you and I, made in his image, be to that call? The physical creation responds to the command of God, and it's glorious. How much more should we who have witnessed the mercy of God through the person and work of Jesus Christ, how much more should we respond to his commands? How much more should we be desirous to live for his glory alone? He certainly calls on us, beloved, to lift up his holy name, to praise him amid the congregation, to worship not simply with our mouths, but with our very lives. Our hearts always in a state of longing for him. We get just glimpses of his majesty, his holiness. We become instantly aware of both his infinite greatness and our own absolute unworthiness. And yet he bids us as his children to come and to enjoy sweet communion with him. To come and praise Him with our voices. To come and worship with our very lives. The one whose glory is at the very center of our existence. We talk continually about the incomprehensible glory of God. And how men like the prophet Isaiah caught just a glimpse of that glory. And was changed forever. You and I know that God is worthy to be praised, and I trust that we know that this morning. As we worship Him, I hope not with just our mouths, but with our hearts and our minds. That's what separates us as the true worshipers of God. When we naturally cry out to God and we lift up our voices to Him with all of our being because we cannot help but to do it. We are but the children of our Father in heaven, and it is our joy to sing his praises. Our hearts and mouths together worshiping him. Never being content to just come here and simply go through the motions. It's the motivation that should drive us in this life. And when it's present in our lives by the grace of Almighty God, it's glorifying to God. And it becomes obvious to those that are not worshiping that indeed there is something otherworldly about us. 
We are praising God, not out of joyless or vain, self-righteous duty, but because of a very real thankfulness, a very real gratitude to Him for our salvation in and through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We are called to come and worship here together now on the Lord's day. But brothers and sisters in Christ, our lives are to be, according to Scripture itself, sacrifices of praise. What does that mean? How does the way in which we live our lives in the here and now speak to the the magnificence, to the power, to the sovereignty, to the glory of Almighty God? Well, I think Jesus himself speaks very clearly to that question. In fact, I would say beautifully in the text that is before us for our consideration this morning. So let's look together now at the Word of God. I'd like you to follow along in your Bibles as I read from the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 6. Again, I will pick up with verse 19 and read through 24. Jesus is speaking. This is the Word of our Lord. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful again that we have this opportunity each and every Lord's Day to come before your word and to receive correction, to receive the blessing of encouragement through the good news of the gospel, to receive truly the hope of our lives. We pray, Father, that your spirit would fill us this morning, that you would keep us from being distracted with the cares of this world, and that we would give our full attention to your holy word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are, of course, now nearing the end of this wonderful sixth chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. It's my hope to preach probably just one more sermon from it next week. We've spent just a few weeks looking somewhat in depth at the teaching of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ regarding prayer. And now we are returning to the lesson that Jesus was in the middle of when we last left looked left off to look more closely at prayer. And Jesus, you will remember, has just told those who were gathered around him to avoid living for or seeking the praises of men in this life. Specifically, he has given to them in this chapter his admonitions about the way in which they were to pray, the way in which they were to do things like fasting, the giving of their alms, the way into which they were to to live out their acts of piety, piety or righteousness in the Christian life. 
to do any of these things in a way that you would knowingly draw attention to yourself and thus receive the coveted praises of men would in fact show very clearly that you are seeking rewards not in heaven, but here on earth. This life, this world, this temporal, temporary place, not the eternal one. The praises of men and the feeling that we get when we receive such praise, and I trust we can all understand what Jesus is talking about here. When we are praised or patted on the back, that is in fact our reward. To do things this way, according to Jesus, is to act as hypocrites, or as the hypocrites do. To act as the scribes and the Pharisees did. To act as those who want a God of their own making. And not the God who has revealed himself in the pages of Holy Scripture. And so we find Jesus telling those who are there that they are to do these things as unto God. As before God. God who sees all that we do. Whether it's in the open or we're doing it in secret. God sees all. He knows all. He knows not just our actions, but he knows the hearts which are driving every single one of them. So we come to this 19th verse. and We find Jesus continuing this idea of what our purpose in this life is. And what our lives should look like in the here and now. It's no doubt a theme that we are all familiar with by this point in this most wonderful sermon of sermons, the Sermon on the Mount. We've spoken, it of, we've spoken of it together many times, this idea of a true, authentic life of gratitude because of faith in Jesus Christ and what it looks like externally. And I think here in this passage of the Sermon on the Mount, we find Jesus Christ expounding upon what really is the essence of life. The life of the true child of God lived to the glory of Almighty God. In verses 19 and 20, Jesus says to his listeners, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Lay up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. It really is a simple principle that anyone who has heard the words of Jesus Christ and has understood what he meant when he explained the way in which you and I are to pray, the way in which you and I are to fast, the way in which you you and I are to give as unto God before the face of God, quorum Deo. And it should spill over into every facet of our lives. You and I are to live our lives as unto God, as before His face. We are to live out this life as before God, not as before the eyes of men. Now we know that to live our lives as simply before the eyes of men will probably bring about at least some satisfaction in this life, won't it? That satisfaction will last for a moment, and then it will be gone, and we will find ourselves looking to be satisfied again and again and again and again, never finding that ultimate satisfaction that we so desperately long for. 
The praises of people in this life can never really satisfy because, beloved, the praises of people are temporary. They are not eternal. They come and go like everything else in this temporary life, and one day they are gone and completely forgotten. So to spend our very lives doing things to that end would be foolish. To spend our lives ever living in any way for the things of this temporary world Decaying every moment is the very height of foolishness, isn't it? Why? Because the things of this world, however spectacular in the moment, simply do not last. Moths and rust come and they destroy our stuff. Thieves come and they take away our things. And then our things are gone. And you say, well, yeah, that, we all agree with that, right? Do you believe that your things never go beyond this life? They're tied to this world. Do you understand that? Does it convict you to think about it this morning? I guess I'm asking, do you and I do these things? Do we truly live this life as before the face of Almighty God, as though we are just passing through, as though we know full well what our time and our energies are to be spent on, those things that truly have eternal consequences? Do we do it? Or do we simply live life? Storing up for ourselves treasures, trinkets, Mementos of this fading temporary life? Do we spend our time and our energy on things to simply aid in our physical enjoyment of this life? To satisfy that fleshly longing for material things that can never really truly satisfy? Or do we find our enjoyment, beloved, our fulfillment in knowing that we are here for the express purpose and the privilege? of bringing glory to Almighty God. To honor His holy name in this life, to live our lives enjoying Him, looking to Him in thankfulness for the salvation wrought for us in and through Jesus Christ. We do not even need to really go into specifics this morning, as if maybe we just do not really know where we stand in this, because the truth is, beloved, we do know our own hearts, don't we? We know that God knows our hearts, and though we might be able to convince everyone around us where our heart resides, the truth is that God and we ourselves individually know. We know. The Word of God is clear that where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. So we need to search our hearts this morning. We need to know where our treasures are. Where are you storing your treasure? You understand the question, right? What are you living for? The clear teaching of Jesus here is that if we do that, we will find what it is that we truly treasure. We can know without a doubt where our hearts are. So we have to go through those things that we think we might treasure, right? 
Do we treasure our careers, our stuff, our hobbies, our families? Do we treasure the way in which we are perceived? I want to tell you that one hits me in the face. I treasure it more than I should. Do we treasure those interests that just seem to exceed all other interests in our lives? You understand, I'm not saying these are bad things in and of themselves. I'm asking you, do they own your heart? Beloved, I pray that we would all heed this warning in Scripture and search our own hearts this morning because Jesus has made it very, very clear up until this point that our purpose for being is to glorify God with this life. Certainly we wouldn't disagree about that, right? And we do that first and foremost by delighting in Him and in Him alone. We are to begin our time in prayer, not at all concerned with this world, except that the Father's name would be glorified. We're to forget forget ourselves. We're to fight against the, the cry of our flesh, pushing us towards lusting after things. Towards hearing our praises on the lips of others. We're to look to Almighty God who sees our sin exactly as it is. With no mask to soften the blow of its hideous nature. He sees it in all of its heinousness. And the word of God says that he loves us. And that he gives us grace and mercy. Not the punishment we know that we deserve. And we are to live delighting in that grace. And so I'm asking you again, beloved, what are you living for this morning? If you were to die today, if you were to walk through that sanctuary door and providentially be taken from us, what would your life point people towards? Will it be an impressive collection of the decaying things of this world, the shiny things? Will you be remembered simply as one who lived grateful to God? A sinner who knew that God had dealt mercifully with him or her and who lived joyfully extending that mercy to everyone else. Does your your treasure require a locked vault for its protection? Or do you own treasure that even the greatest thief of this world, even Satan himself, could never, ever have any hope to steal. Look at verses 22 and 23. Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? You understand the point. The eyes of the body are the lamp. In other words, what you and I set our eyes upon, the body is sure to follow. If our eyes are good by the grace of God, we set them on those things which are above this life. 
Those things that are manifested in true faith. We set them on eternity. We set them upon the majesty of our God, which he reveals to us in his word. We set them upon his incomprehensible mercy and grace given to us in the gospel. We set them upon Jesus Christ and his righteousness, knowing that only his righteousness will ever be sufficient to satisfy the just condemnation and the wrath of Almighty God. We set them on the prize that is laid before us, life eternally with Him. We ignore those things that come into this life and try to divert our gaze from God Himself. You see, beloved, it is our hearts that control the direction of our eyes. I want to tell you, King David understood this in Psalm 51. And so he begged for what? Bigger and better stuff? More respect to be shown him as the king? To be vindicated? For God to relent his pursuit of him? For for God to give him a greater kingdom to improve his state of thankfulness? No, he asked for what he needed most in life. A new heart. Create in me a new heart, O God. And when we look to these things, and we set our faces like flint in this direction, the Bible says, then the whole body is full of light. You understand? That's the purpose of our eyes in this life, to look to God in gratitude and to live as those who know that this life is but a moment of preparation for eternity. We're just passing through. I said it this morning in Sunday school, we're pilgrims. However, tragically, it's not the only thing that we can set our eyes on in this life, is it? We cast our gazes to the things of the world. We can make our concern in this life our own comfort, our own reputation, our own fame, our own legend of apparent success. We can seek to set our eyes on the gain of wealth and not look to the right or the left, but pursue it until it's ours. And we can achieve it. We can set our eyes on these things and probably in truth all of us can relate to this. Some of us probably still do it, right? Beloved, I want us to see from the word of God that we need to face that there is a consequence. What is the consequence? What is the condition of our whole bodies if we do that? If we set our eyes on the wrong things, according to Jesus here, Our whole bodies will be full of darkness, and how great is that darkness? We cannot set one eye on God and the other on the world and hope to somehow have the best of both. God requires our full attention, and He will not compete with the meager things, the weak things, the shiny things, the temporary things of this fading world, which is passing before us, vying for our attention. So, 
again, we ask, you know, what, what, is our li- what, are, what is our life about? Where do we set our eyes? Because our eyes were created for a purpose. And that purpose is to take in the glorious blessings of God and the glory of God. They were designed to set upon the innumerable mercies of God. They are indeed new every morning. They were meant to set upon His word, His promises, His faithfulness, His glory. Do you see them? Where are you content to lock your eyes this morning? Jesus makes this last point crystal clear for us in the rest of the text before us this morning. Look at verse 24. No one will serve two masters. It doesn't happen. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and he'll despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. You know, if you're sitting here this morning and you think that you will continue to be content to have your eyes set on both God and the world with all of its opportunity. Jesus says, you cannot. It's not up for debate. You cannot justify having your heart belong to both. Because in reality, if your heart is set upon the things of this world, according to Jesus, you will by nature hate the one who says that your attention belongs to him. It'll be an affront to your pursuit of autonomy, right? The Lord Jesus Christ says the truth is you will love one and hate the other and there really is no middle ground. You can't have a heart that's set on both things. So beloved, I ask you, where is your heart this morning? Which direction do you set your eyes in this life knowing that your body will follow? Of course, I pray for all of us that it's on God and God alone who's merciful to sinners like us, who alone is eternal, who alone provides all that we could ever truly need in this troubled life, including a satisfaction that lasts and sustains us by the power of the Holy Spirit, even in this fleeting life. All other things will fade away. What is it that defines you this morning? Where is your treasure really? For whom or for what do you live your life? Beloved, it's my hope that we'll search our hearts, that we will pray that Almighty God will open our eyes through the power of the Holy Spirit to the true motives of our hearts, that He will make the cross of Jesus Christ, His resurrection, His ascension to the right hand of God for us, the glory of God, our ultimate treasure. I pray that he will make the grace of God Almighty our treasure. May he make the holiness and the glory and the incomprehensible power of God that we sing of so freely as we worship our real treasure. That we will look to Jesus who died for our sin, resting in his glorious salvation, wrought upon that very cross for us. And that our being grateful to God by his grace alone, we would then live our lives accordingly. Like we really believe this stuff. You know, I'm going, I'll always remember a time, it's probably been 10, 11 years ago now, when the real weight of this passage hit home with me. And I was attending a funeral service for a very dear friend and sister in Christ whose name was Sylvia Guthrie. And 
I undoubtedly have mentioned her name to you before. The thing about Sylvia Guthrie was she was a godly, simple woman that I love very much in my life. She and her husband, Harold, lived a simple life. And their simple life was beautiful to me. And I can remember that morning of that particular funeral thinking, and really being in mourning over how much I was going to miss having her as a part of our lives and my family's life. She had been coming to a Bible study in our home in Holland for a few years, and Bianca and I absolutely loved being around her. She lived very quietly, very humbly, very graciously in this world. And I'm never going to forget that morning as I sat waiting for this funeral, for this simple unknown woman to take place. We were in this tiny little room at the funeral home. And I noticed that as the time drew nearer for the service to start, the crowd of people trying to get into that tiny room was growing by the second. And it kept growing and growing and growing. Her family had planned to need to accommodate at most 100, 110, 120 people people who might come pay their last respects to this woman who lived a very quiet life. It soon became such an issue that some of the other deacons that in this church I was involved with and my, that were present along with myself, we, we got up and we went and we spoke with the people from the funeral home and we helped the funeral home take down these two dividing walls that separated the room that her funeral was to be held in from the larger room that stood directly behind it. And we kept adding chairs. They even had to delay the start of the funeral to make sure that everyone that was pouring through the doors of this funeral home had a place to sit. This room was filled with people, double the number they were expecting. And it was filled with people who had in some way been touched by the kindness of this ordinary woman. Adults who I heard talking who had been driven to church every Sunday by Sylvia when their families would not take them when they were children. There were grown men and women there who remembered Sylvia volunteering to babysit them when they were children so that she could be certain that whatever their particular circumstances were, that they would have the opportunity to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. She didn't even take money for it. She was invested in the kingdom. I began to remember that Sylvia used to bring this young girl with her every week from her neighborhood to my house for Bible study every single Saturday night. And the little girl's parents loved the fact that this kind older woman would watch their daughter on Saturday nights so that they could go out and enjoy some time together. Sylvia made it her mission to make sure that this dear little girl heard the good news about Jesus Christ, her Lord. She was invested. You see, the world looked at the life of Sylvia Guthrie and decided, at best, a hundred maybe 120 people. After all, she didn't have a lot to show for 84 years of toil upon this earth. 
In fact, I can tell you she had nothing. She had never acquired any wealth. She struggled to make ends meet financially right to the very end of her life. She didn't leave anything behind at all in the way of material things. But the truth is, as I sat in that funeral home, and I heard these very words of Jesus Christ being read that morning, I realized she did not spend her life leaving things behind her. She stored it up in heaven where it belonged and where it would remain for eternity. Where she herself longed to be. She spent her life pointing out to those around her, not her needs, not her lack, not her disappointments, not her annoyances, not the things she wanted but knew that she couldn't have, but the glory of the Father, her Father. The mercy of God to her, a sinner who deserved wrath, but was given the eternal, immeasurable gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The fact is, she lived her life in such humility that I did not even realize the extent that she lived for the glory of God until she was gone. Sylvia Guthrie, in all of her simplicity, understood the Sermon on the Mount to the degree that some of the most well-known theologians, the most decorated biblical scholars in this world, have never, ever grasped. Because for Sylvia, it wasn't enough to know it. She joyfully looked to Jesus Christ in faith. She longed for his word. And she greatly, gratefully lived every moment for his glory. And truly, she gave no thought to her own. You know, I wonder what the world will think of us at our own funerals. I, it's hard for me to think about in my own life. What will my life point others towards? What will people see? When my eyelids close in death, what will others remember? Beloved, let's decide today to put the foolish pursuit of this world behind us and set our eyes like our hearts on the real prize in this life. Let us look to what is manifested only to true faith and spend our days by the grace of Almighty God building up treasure in heaven, living for the glory of God, the Father, our Father, who sent His only begotten Son to live in the flesh, to do what we could never do as fallen people, to keep the law in our place for us and come and die for sinners like us. Not because of us, despite us. Beloved, let us live as those whose eyes have truly seen the glory of our Lord and we have been changed because of it. We need to ask ourselves where we are storing our treasure. By the grace of Almighty God, beloved, let us spend ourselves in this life shining forth the true true treasure here on earth, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Knowing that the promise of the word is, It will pierce the darkness as it shines forth, not through our strengths, but through our cracks and our weaknesses.
Will you give glory to God in this life? Let's pray.